everyone. It's 7.30. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory in Tucson, Arizona. Our local audience here, thank you for coming. We also welcome those of you who are watching us on Zoom uh, through our streaming channel here, and those of you who will be watching this lecture in the future. Uh, thank you for tuning us in. Uh, before I introduce tonight's speakers, I want to tell you that it is a beautiful night outside. So the telescope, the Raymond E. White Jr. telescope is open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. It's the 100-year-old white building right next door. You go up two flights of stairs, and we have very friendly undergraduate telescope operators there to uh, tell you what you're looking at. They'll point to anything you ask if it's up in the sky. Also, if you haven't seen the original lobby of Stewart Observatory, we are uh, renovating it. We're turning it into a visitor center slash museum. So it's at our first iteration. If you haven't had a chance to visit it, we have a mock-up of Andrew Ellicott Douglas' office from 100 years ago and uh, historical equipment, as well as a nice little touchscreen kiosk that can tell you about some of the current projects that are going on here at Stewart Observatory. Um, other than that, I think that's all I had to announce. At the end of the lecture, we'll tell you what our next lecture is in two weeks. But we're continuing this theme of James Webb Space Telescope which is scheduled to launch on December the 18th from French Guiana. And uh, there are many people here at Stewart Observatory involved with the James Webb Space Telescope. We've already heard from two of the instrument scientists, George Rieke and Marcia Rieke. We're continuing on with two more astronomers from their team. Everett Schlowin, is that right? Schlowin. Schlowin received his bachelor's degree in physics from Oberlin College in Ohio, and his PhD in astronomy from the greatest university in the United States. That's right, Cornell University. Christina Williams received her bachelor's degree in physics from Johns Hopkins University, and then her PhD in astronomy from the University of Massachusetts, which is in Amherst. They are both members of the JWST team. Do you have the, the research professor title now? I have a yeah, research professor, yes. Right, and you're also a research professor. They changed our titles for those of us that aren't tenure track faculty. So they're both research professors here at Stewart Observatory, and they are going to tell you how JWST will give us the ingredients of new worlds. That's the first part of the talk. So I'll turn it over to Everett. Thank you very much for the introduction. Can the people in the back hear me through the speaker system? Okay. Tom's going to try to turn it up. All right. Well, I look forward to going on a short journey with you to follow the James Webb Space Telescope and how it will give us the ingredients of new worlds. Uh, and on deck will be Christina. And she's going to talk about what it can do with galaxies. So, okay. How about now? How about now? Is that any better? It's better? Thank you. So, okay. Yeah, that always should we just be the best. Okay, so let's, let's get this okay, one. Yeah. How about now? Much better? Okay. I look forward to going on this short journey with you following the James Webb Space Telescope and how it's going to get us ingredients in new worlds. I want to take this time to just briefly acknowledge um, my team led by Marsha Rieke. Uh, on the, the main camera for the James Webb Space Telescope, the near-infrared near camera, near-cam. And then um, also I want to do a brief land acknowledgement. We respectively acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land of the territories of, the, of indigenous, indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Otham and the Yaki. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. So we're gonna be following the journey of the Webb Telescope from where it started, where it became a, a series of segmented mirrors all came together in Maryland and through Texas, California, French Guiana will be launched 
and into space where we're going to see what it can do with new worlds. So I'm not going to, we're not going to spend too much time explaining exactly what web is. You can see some of the previous talks. If you missed them, uh, they're, they're available online. But the basic facts you need to know about the, the telescope is that it's a six and a half meter diameter telescope. It's the biggest space telescope ever to be launched. It's going to be cryogenic. So it's going to be sensitive to heat. It needs to be cooled down and, it's, and it senses infrared light. Anything that's warm gives off infrared light. And the mission lifetime is expected to be about five years. And then it has enough propellant, hopefully longer, for longer than 10 years. Everything goes smoothly. And just for some context of what we have out, out there for space telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope is only 2.4 meters. And uh, it's a much warmer telescope in this low Earth orbit. So when, it's, when you have a warm telescope, it's difficult to see infrared radiation because your own, your own telescope is radiating infrared light. The, other, the, old, the, the uh, biggest previous infrared mission we had is the Spitzer Observatory. And you can see how much smaller it is than Webb will be. And you can see on the bottom what the wavelength coverage is. So it's, it's going to see this infrared light that's uh, invisible to our eyes beyond the, what Hubble can see. And just for some context for the size of this mirror, if you were to bring the telescope to a basketball court and, and lay it down, it'd be about the distance from a three-point line to the hoop. So that's how far across it is from one side of the mirror to the other. The largest ever telescope to go to space. It's so big it won't fit in any um, rocket fairing, so it has to be folded up and then deployed and launched. So this was designed decades before we even had all the planets we have now. So in order to deploy the observatory, it has to be folded up for launch and then unfolded. So the first thing that happened is the solar panel and the antenna array to, to do the communications and power and then unfurl the mirror covers, the uh, sun shield covers, so that the sun shield can deploy. And so you can see now the tensioning, the pulling apart of the sun shield. Now, the sun shield is, is extremely critical to keep the telescope cold. The telescope is going to be at minus 390 degrees Fahrenheit. But the sun-facing side is going to be a hundred, positive 190 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's like ice and fire from one side to the other of this sun shield. It's critical to bounce that radiation away. So it has to be taut and tensioned so that it can reflect away the infrared light and radiate it away and keep the telescope cool to see some of the faintest objects in the universe. So we're all very we're going to be crossing our fingers during this deployment process. The final steps will be to deploy the secondary and primary mirrors to complete the observatory. So this 29 days will be on the edge hoping it all goes smoothly. It's going to be a million miles from the Earth with no opportunity for astronauts to go and repair any problems. So it all has to work perfectly to succeed. So a little bit about this journey. I was fortunate to join the Webb project when, it was, uh, when they were assembling the mirrors in Maryland to put together the, the telescope mirrors. Then it was taken to Texas where it was put in a vacuum chamber, the one used for the Apollo missions, and tested. We sent light all the way from the primary to the secondary through the whole instrument suite to make sure that we get the images we expect when we deploy the observatory. We would not make the same mistakes we did with the Hubble Space Telescope. From there, in Texas, it was flown to California, where at Northrop Grumman, it was combined with the Sun Shield and spacecraft to complete the entire observatory. <clears throat> and then, not too long ago, was shipped by boat. You can see the boat it was on, the MN Calibri, to take this through the Panama Canal all the way to French Guiana, and then where our colleagues just tested the observatory to make sure all the instruments, everything checked out. So we are in, in good shape. The previous, teles the previous rocket was, was, was launched successfully. So now Webb is on deck to be the next 
thing, next Ariane 5 rocket to be launched. They have a good track record, these rockets. And we're in pretty good shape. The, the launch date is, is currently set for December 18th of this year. After it launches, it's going to be going out to this, million, this place a million miles from the Earth. It's a special point in space called a Lagrangian point. It allows the observatory to go on a one-year orbit, always keeping the Earth and the sun, the moon, all behind its sun shield while it looks out at some of the faintest objects in the universe. Oh, I have a gallery view. Let me see. I was blocking all my slides. Okay. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to just try just zoom settings a little bit. Okay. Let me try again. Um, Oh, probably it works better online than in print. Let me see. Yeah. Okay. So now, did I? Am I sharing screen on Zoom though? Nope. Okay. Zoom settings. Okay. We just have to. Yeah. I apologize. I can't see an easy way to shrink the. You can. Oh wait, wait. wait. Uh, you know what? I can do this. Okay. All right. Let's try. Okay. Zoom settings. A lot of fun. All right. So, back to the telescope and the science we can do. So this Lagrangian point, where the the observatory is going to go and look out at all these cool scientific objects. So, um, Christina is going to talk about what it can do with galaxies. I'm most interested in what it can do with planets that are outside the solar system. Okay. When the telescope was designed, this was before we even, we were just discovering the very first planets. We didn't, we just were just finding out in the 1990s that there are other planets confirmed outside the solar system. And since that time, we now have lots of them to choose from. And this is thanks to the NASA's Kepler and TESS missions, which looked out at different stars without blinking and waited for a planet to cross in front and block some of the light, which is called the transit. And this is a very successful method. that NASA's Kepler and TESS missions were able to find thousands and thousands of planets. Just some of them are shown in this next slide. This is the Kepler Aurora. If you were to take the multi-planet systems that just Kepler found and put them, brought them to the solar system and then scaled up all the planets in size so you could see them, this is what you would get. And you can see a lot of them have these very short period orbits. They're very close to their stars and very hot planets. And so with all these thousands of planets to choose from, thanks to these previous missions, we can now choose some, some ones that are very interesting and easiest to study. For their atmospheres. So these transiting planets that go in front of and behind their host stars, and that's a, the, that provides val valuable opportunities to study their atmospheres. If you look at the planet when it's in front of the star, you can see the light filtering through the atmosphere and use a tool that we call spectroscopy. So this is depicted in Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album cover. You can see it going through the prism. And so there are different ways to spread the light. You have a different way. You have these diffraction gl uh, glasses. If someone uh, didn't, raise your hand if you didn't get a pair of diffraction glasses and you want them, maybe I'll ask Tom to help me pass them out. So the, the kind of spectra we're going to be looking at and discussing today, uh, one is a continuous spectrum, this continuous rainbow of colors. And then you can have an absorption spectrum. That's where you have a cooler gas on top of this light source, in front of this light source that absorbs specific lines. 
And those lines correspond to different atomic transitions or rotations or vibrations of atoms and molecules that reveal their chemical, their spectral fingerprints. So when you have a cool gas on top of this light source, it makes these dark lines. If that light, if that gas is hotter than the background, then you get these emission lines. So that's what produces an emissions line spectrum. So now let's have a look at a spectrum with these spectra glasses. For those of you online, you can look at the picture I've taken of what you can see through these glasses. But uh, if you're using the glasses, what you want to do is take a look at this, this lamp. Get, make sure you, your glasses are folded up so they can fit on your, on your ears. And then what you want to do is not look directly at this lamp, but you want to look to the side. So somewhere, if you look towards me, probably around where I am, you'll see some emission lines. And so what you can do is look at those emission lines, compare it to a library. We have a library of spectra here. A library of spectra can be found from a laboratory or calculated theoretically with quantum mechanics. But each atom here has its own spectral finger fingerprint. So you can feel free uh, on the Zoom chat to type in, what do you think? So the first mystery spectrum is at the top. And your job is to identify the gas that you see. So do we have any uh, brave volunteers in the audience who want to hazard a guess to which, which gas they see that best matches the library, the mystery one that best matches the library? Okay, I'm hearing some votes for hydrogen. Anyone want to say why they think hydrogen might be the right? Yeah, so there's a red line. There's no yellow line like we see in the... In the um, library and we do have these blue and purple lines so yes indeed this one is hydrogen okay here's your next mystery spectrum so you should be looking somewhere around where i am to see the spectrum with the glasses So I hear people talking about a double yellow line. Does anyone see a double yellow line? Raise your hand if you can see it. Yeah, so you might notice that some of these, these lamps can have contaminants, so it might not perfectly match our library, but that's actually a good representation of reality. When we look at a planet, we're not just gonna have a pure gas of one type, there's gonna be a mixture. So, this indeed is mercury, and you can identify it from that double yellow line. Okay, here's mystery spectrum number three. Do we have any uh, guesses for what we see? in this mystery lamp number three. So I heard a shout out for helium. Does anyone wanna say why they think it's helium and not another gas? Or they disagree and they see a different gas in there? So you can see a, a sharp yellow line not the double line this time that, that indicates that this one is helium. So if you said helium, good job on that one. All right. And the last one. Yeah, feel free to shout this one out. This one's pretty clear. What is that? Neon. So what you're doing is using the light from these lamps to figure out what's inside them. None of you have come up in here to take a sample and bring it back to your lab. You're just using the light. And this is what we have to do as astronomers is we only have the light to work with. We're not gonna be able to go visit these planets and bring back a sample. We have to use the light and what's available to us. So we can use spectroscopy, spread out that light that we see into the different colors 
and identify the spectral fingerprint we see in a planet atmosphere to figure out what it's made of. So astronomers, these are these are pretty cool lamps and pretty cool uh, diffraction glasses. But if you go up to a telescope, it's not very practical to be trying to do this with uh, through the eyepiece all the time. And our eyes are only sensitive to optical light. We can't see the infrared and radio, ultraviolet. Can't see all those interesting wavelengths. So astronomers take spectra and they record them on cameras and and they record them as plots. So this plot contains the same information that you're seeing. As, a, as the spectrum through the glasses, but we just turn this into intensity as a function of wavelength. So a lot of the times you're gonna see spectra in the form of plots that contain the same information as these spectra glasses. And they're easier to quanti quantitatively analyze to understand what we're seeing with a planet atmosphere. So one of the first things we can do with a is, is look for planets that are crossing in front of their host stars and look at the light of the star as it goes through the atmosphere of the planet to see, this is called a transmission spectrum, looking through to the transmission of the atmosphere. And you can see here, if we look with the Webb telescope at a spectral fingerprint that looks like methane, we can tell that there's methane in a planet atmosphere. And one thing astronomers are hoping to do is, is take all of this compositional information and learn about how planets formed. It's actually pretty difficult to go just from measuring the, the composition of a planet to figure out how it formed in a disk. So the easier way is to start with a planet uh, formation model where you build a model of a, a disk with dust and gas and solids that builds into planets and then evaluate what happens. And so in that model, they can you start sticking together these ices and rocks until they have enough gravity to self-gravitate and hold themselves together and build up into larger sizes. Now, if they reach as large as 10 Earth masses, that's enough gravity to start sucking in substantial amounts of hydrogen helium from their gas, from their disk, and make this envelope surrounding a rocky a core of a planet. And so using these models and following where the gas goes, where the solids go, then gets enriched into that gas, we can compare the predictions from planet formation models to what we see in the atmospheres of planets. Another thing that we can learn from the, the transiting systems is studying them during secondary eclipse to learn about where their heat goes. So we're pretty familiar here with a temperature profile that decreases with height. In the brutal summer time, you can go on the top of a mountain to get some relief from that heat. So you get higher in altitude, you get cooler. You could also have places where there are temperature inversions, where it actually gets warmer as you go up. Now, this kind of system is more stable. The hot air wants to rise up, the cool air wants to stay down. There's less mixing in the atmosphere. So that's actually a good place if you want to try to put an observatory. So it's a stable atmosphere that doesn't have a lot of turbulence. Now, you can use spectra to figure out what the atmosphere is doing with height. And we can see this in the solar spectrum. We look at the spectrum of the sun, you see this rainbow, and then these dark absorption lines on top of it. And so that's an absorption spectrum. That's an atmosphere that decreases in temperature with height. You can also have a temperature inversion. That's where you see the lines that are brighter than the continuum. And so that happens like with just this, this lamp you were looking at, a neon emission lamp was a lot brighter than its surrounding. So the same thing happens if you look at an atmosphere that's got these lines on top of the continuum. Another way to study these transiting systems is to follow their whole orbit as the planet goes all the way around and measure the light to figure out where the planet is hottest. So this was done. Um, for only a handful of hot Jupiter systems, but it's going to be done a lot better and for a lot more planets and smaller mass planets with the James Webb Space Telescope. And the neat, neat part of these results is the late Adam Showman and collaborators right from here at the University of Arizona predicted how the planets, how a hot Jupiter planet, a, a 
a Jupiter-sized Jupiter-mass planet that's close to its host star is going to carry the heat around the planet and where that circulation will bring it. And what they predicted is it's going to make this offset hotspot. It's going to carry the wind is going to carry it to the east from the point facing the star. And then they went out with the Spitzer Space Telescope and made a measurement of the orbit and found that this prediction was true. So spectra have these, these as an amazing tool to give us information about the heat distribution and the composition, make maps of planets, and learn a lot about how they form and how planet atmospheres work. But you may also be interested in the big human question, are we alone? And this has captured the imagination of a lot of people, including these science fiction authors and movie directors and, and makers. Now, the best system to start answering this question right now that we have is the TRAPPIST-1E system. This is an artist rendition, a, re a neat um, travel guide, uh, travel poster that was made for the TRAPPIST-1 system. There are a whole variety of these very cool posters. So if you want to like hold up your phone to get the link, uh, I highly recommend these travel bureau posters. You can print them out at home, put them up in your wall. Imagine all the places that you might you could you could uh, explore with the James Webb Space Telescope what it might be like if you went there. So the Trappist One system, these planets these planets orbit a small red dwarf star. It's not much bigger than the size of Jupiter in our own solar system, and has these these uh, seven known planets orbiting. Now the planets that are really close to the star. It's like going into a, a bonfire on a, on a cold night. You get too close to that bonfire, it's going to feel really hot. So those are very hot planets. And then if you get far away from that bonfire on a cold night, it feels chilly out there. But there's a few planets, planets E and F, where it's a nice, comfortable temperature in between, where you could have liquid water on the surface. And so everything, all the life we know about in the Earth requires liquid water to survive. So this could be a place we could start exploring and trying to answer some of these questions, big human questions. The first thing we can answer, and this is possible with the James Webb Space Telescope, is does a planet have an atmosphere? And the answer to this comes from the spectrum again. If you see a spectrum that has any color to it, has any change in wavelength, then you know it can it's a sign of an atmosphere, something that's absorbing and and uh, letting through different wavelengths of light, it's a sign that we know it has an atmosphere. But if there's color, if it's a colorless silhouette, which we see as a flat spectrum, then we we know this is a sign it doesn't have an atmosphere. And so this is the one of the first questions we can begin to answer with the James Webb Space Telescope around these habitable planets. Now, this is going to be just at the limit and beyond what James Webb Space Telescope, but someday we're hoping to look for life that's like that we have on the Earth. And on the Earth, if you look at the atmosphere, you see there's oxygen and methane. And the oxygen comes from these phytoplankton and trees and plants, all these things producing oxygen. And these methanogens all over are producing methane, like even in our guts. And that methane and oxygen, if you, if you didn't have any life and you just let it go, let the system go, those methane and oxygen gases we wouldn't see because they are chemically reactive. So you need life to have these gases in an atmosphere. And that's why these are great biosignatures to look for in extrasolar planets. And they each have their own chemical fingerprint. The methane has its, its characteristic uh, spectral fingerprint. And then oxygen, it's diffi difficult to see the oxygen directly, but in the, when it's in an ozone form produced in the higher atmosphere, it has a very strong spectral fingerprint. So this will be right at the limit and right beyond the limit of what Webb can do. But I see Webb as, as playing a crucial role in, as a stepping stone to life detection. So we can learn what planets are made of and how they form, which rocky planets may have atmospheres and how they distribute their heat and see if they're good conditions, habitable conditions for life and the future look for Earth-like life. So that's the short journey 
of web go going from its its construction to launch and where it'll be in this Lagrangian point. It's going to be at a Lagrangian point near you. So stay tuned. And next is uh, Christina to tell you about what web can do with galaxies. Um, oh, thanks. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to start with a timeline of uh, cosmic history. So we think that the universe started with the Big Bang over here. And right after the Big Bang, the universe was filled with hot gas. Um, and as the universe expanded after the Big Bang, the hot gas cooled to form the first atoms, primarily hydrogen and helium. And we think that this gas must have collapsed under its own gravity to form the first stars, which eventually made up the first galaxies. Um, this whole era of the first stars and the first galaxies is basically hidden from our view currently uh, because our telescopes, limitations to our current telescopes. So we can't see faint enough to see these distant galaxies. So that's sort of an intuitive idea that things that are really far away are very faint. But we also can't see red enough to identify these early stars and galaxies. And that's a less intuitive thing that I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but it's important to remember because I'll be talking about this throughout the whole talk. Um, so we can't see red enough or faint enough to identify galaxies and it's the first stars and the first galaxies here. Our first view of galaxies in the early universe appears around 400 million years after the Big Bang. So this little red blob here is the galaxy that was identified with Hubble. Um, it is about 400 million years after the Big Bang. And this galaxy was freakishly bright. Um, so given what we thought we knew about the early universe, we probably should not have found a galaxy this bright at that early time. So this indicates that we still have a really you know, limited understanding of what happens in the first few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So Hubble's been really instrumental though at teaching us how you get from these little red blobs in the early universe that we think are the first galaxies uh, across cosmic time to you know, how these galaxies sort of grow and change in order to um, form these big modern galaxies that we see in our local universe, our nearby galaxies to the Milky Way. And these things are like, you know, grand design spirals, these very large galaxies that are very beautiful. Um, so how did we use Hubble to study how galaxies built up over cosmic time? Well, a lot of this information came from observations like this one, so-called um, deep field surveys. So if you're an astronomy enthusiast, you probably recognize this image. This is the Hubble deep field. This is a, a picture of the universe that was taken in Hubble's first few years in 1995. And Hubble stared at a seemingly blank patch of the sky for 10 days. So that's a very long time to point a telescope at one spot. And what they found is that this blank spot of, on the sky was actually full of thousands of galaxies. And um, all of these galaxies, these little blobs here, are a different galaxy at a different distance in the universe. And so each of these little galaxies is a, is a little snapshot of what early galaxies looked like um, and is sort of a preview of uh, the fa different phases that galaxies go through throughout the course of their lives to form these big grand design spirals that we see in the local universe today. So how do astronomers learn you know, what the universe looked like in the past? Well, the speed of light is a constant. So if galaxies are um, very far away from us, then this, given the constant speed of light, it takes, it'll take billions of years for the light from that galaxy to arrive here. So we're really looking at the light that left that galaxy billions of years ago. And that means this is kind of like a time machine um, that helps us understand what early galaxies looked like. So uh, the farther back in, the farther away we look at a galaxy, the farther back in time we are also looking in the universe. Um, so we could even look as far back as soon after the Big Bang. And so one of the important things, this little um, zoom simulation of the Hubble deep field here, uh, all of these galaxies, we had to measure the distances to all of those galaxies in order to sort of construct the fly through. Uh, and um, so measuring the distances to galaxies is a really key part of trying to understand how galaxies form and change over time. So since the Hubble deep field, 
there's been a lot of progress in um, making bigger and better deep field surveys over the past few decades. So this thing here that I'm showing is just uh, sort of explaining the progress that we've seen since the Hubble deep field. So here's the Hubble deep field up here in 1995. This was an image taken primarily at optical wavelengths. So these are the wavelengths that you see with your eye. Um, so that got us part of the way back to the beginning of the universe, but not all the way. So in, 20, in 2004, Hubble did another deep field survey that we called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, uh, which went deeper. It's still in the optical, but it went deeper primarily. Um, it's, it's went earlier in the universe primarily because it went deeper. So it, it detected, it stared at the patch of sky for longer so that it could detect fainter galaxies, uh, which were at much greater distances. So in 2009, Hubble got a new, very sensitive near-infrared camera called um, the Wide Field Camera 3. And this really sort of was a game changer for Hubble because now we could see in the infrared, near-infrared wavelengths instead of just at the optical. And this new capability to go to longer wavelengths in the near-infrared let us look back earlier in time than was previously possible with only the optical imaging. So that's this here, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field in the infrared. And this is the same principle that JWST is gonna do using near-infrared imaging to get even farther back in the universe. So why uh, does near-infrared imaging help us do that? Well, galaxies that are moving, so, so I said earlier that galaxies that are more distant from us um, are, you know, we're looking back in time, but the universe is also expanding since the Big Bang. And so what that means is that all of those distant galaxies are moving away from us. And as they're moving away from us, they, the light is uh, reddened from these galaxies by the Doppler effect. And so um, sort of the traditional analogy to understand the Doppler effect is the train that's receding from us. And as it's receding, you hear the pitch deepen and that's because the sound waves are getting stretched out. So the same thing happens to the light from galaxies. The wavelength gets stretched out and these galaxies get reddened. And so we call that effect redshift. And so you can measure this effect by looking at the little spectral features in galaxies, similar to what spectral features um, Everett was talking about with planets, we can measure things like hydrogen and helium lines in galaxies to measure the redshift. Um, so one last point is that the farther back, the, the more distant the galaxy, um, the higher, the faster it's moving away from us and the higher its redshift is. So its light will be more stretched out the faster it's moving away from us and the more distant it is. Um, so this is a really great thing because it means that we can actually measure the distances to all of these different galaxies that we sort of detect on one image altogether, but we can figure out which galaxies are at what distances from us to learn about how these galaxies change over time. So there is one problem though. Uh, it's really hard to measure spectral features from high ridge of galaxies. Galaxies are really faint, and that means that their spectral features, like the things that Everett was talking about with the, with the emission lines and the different elements, uh, those things are really hard to measure. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of telescope time, the telescope time is expensive, and it's really hard to do it for lots of galaxies to get like a, a big collection and, and understand how populations are changing with large numbers of galaxies. Um, so we really want like a spectral feature that we can measure that doesn't require getting a spectrum um, and instead you can look at how the different colors of the galaxy change just from images. So um, I'm going to demonstrate here one of the, uh, one of the, the uh, phenomena that we exploit in order to try to identify the, the, the distances to, to galaxies in the early universe. So this is a spectrum of a very bright galaxy, a very bright type of galaxy called a quasar. Um, so this is similar plot to whatever it showed where uh, we translate those um, colored uh, bars into intensity or brightness um, as a function of the wavelength or the color of the light. So this blip here is a hydrogen line. Um, and so I'm gonna show a little schematic here. Here is the, the quasar up here actually. Um, so I'm gonna show a little schematic of what happens when the light leaves this quasar. And if this quasar, um, were moved to higher and higher redshifts. And uh, what happens is the space between galaxies is not empty, it's full of hydrogen. Um, and that hydrogen 
uh, absorbs the light. So here I'm going to show now uh, the light has left the quasar. We're, we're simulating this quasar as if it were going to higher and higher redshifts, so larger and larger distances. Um, and at higher and higher redshifts and larger distances, more of the light on its way to Earth gets absorbed by all of this foreground gas, the, the, the hydrogen that sort of sits between galaxies in empty space. And it starts to erode the spectrum so that um, if you go to very large distances, a big chunk of the spectrum is now missing. So this is now not a quasar, this is a, a, a sort, sort of more run of the mill galaxy. The, the spectrum of the galaxy is here in gray. Um, and these colored uh, curves here are showing sort of the, the, the colors that Hubble sees. So Hubble sees color, he's a blue color, it sees other blue colors, it sees green, yellow, red, and then it sees with its new infrared camera, it can see these near infrared um, colors over here. So if you were to take a picture of this, this galaxy, at, this galaxy has had its, red, its light red shifted by about a factor of four. So this is about 1 billion years after the Big Bang. So it's very early in the universe history. Um, you can take pictures with Hubble and you get something like this. So there's a blank uh, image here where the light has been completely absorbed by hydrogen in the foreground, uh, but it's visible in all the others. And so this strong break here where you see no galaxy and then you see another galaxy helps us identify what the redshift of this galaxy is. So now I'm gonna uh, move this galaxy to farther and farther distances or higher and higher redshifts. And you can see how this galaxy drops out of all of the Hubble images on the bottom panel. So as we move to higher redshifts, the galaxy's uh, light drops out of the filter and we can't see it with Hubble anymore until you get to about redshift 11. So redshift 11 is about 400 million years after the Big Bang. And that's the galaxy I showed you in the first slide. And this is basically the edge of what Hubble can see. So if this galaxy were any higher redshift or any farther away from us, Hubble would have not seen it at all. And this is why we're blind to the early universe right now. So JWST is gonna change all of that because JWST can go to redder near infrared wavelengths than Hubble can, but it's also uh, has extremely sensitive near infrared detectors on it. And so that makes us sensitive to uh, very, very faint galaxies. So here's just a um, quick reminder of the wavelength coverage here. So here's a Hubble Space Telescope seeing primarily in the visible and a little bit of infrared coverage, but JWST has coverage across all of these infrared wavelengths that really extend our, uh, our, our, um, our eyes into the early universe. So we can see these redder and redder galaxies as we go farther and farther back in time. So I will point out as, as um, Everett did that we did have a mid-infrared telescope, the Spitzer Space Telescope uh, previously, um, that did cover some of this wavelength coverage and was really instrumental in doing a lot of good science. But Spitzer is really tiny. So if you think of, J if you think of these like telescope mirrors as giant photon buckets or giant light buckets, JWST is gonna collect all the photons and, and, and anything that Spitzer did was really only sensitive to the very brightest things, the things that emitted the most photons. And, and uh, you know, that doesn't tell us about sort of representative galaxies, your run of the mill galaxies in the early universe. Okay, so now I'm gonna show you some simulations of JWST data. So you have an idea of what to expect in the next say year or year and a half. So on the left here, I'm showing um, a real observed image. This is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And this is a color composite showing uh, some optical bands and some of the near infrared bands from Hubble. Um, and it's a really beautiful image. You see all these little galaxies, uh, different colors of galaxies, which you know have different stellar compositions, but also different distances from us. Um, this image on the right is a simulation of what JWST will see in the same part of the sky. And this simulation is specifically a deep field survey that is being planned with JWST here at Arizona. So the principal investigator is uh, Dr. Marsha Riki. Um, this, is, this image was a, a very collaborative effort, a lot of work from a lot of different people on our team to put together. Um, and so uh, this is, 
represents a monumental amount of work from our team, but we're really excited to see what it looks like. And so I'll point out a couple of fe interesting features about it. So first, uh, you know, this is exactly simu simulating this field, um, but only in the uh, longer wavelengths, so the near infrared wavelengths. Um, you'll probably notice that a lot of these galaxies are sort of mathematically ideal uh, light profiles, so they don't have the spiral structures and irregular um, morphologies that real galaxies do, but this was part of um, sort of by design because we wanted to be able to test our uh, sort of our processing software to try to understand if we can measure things correctly from the data when it, com when it comes in. So the other thing you'll notice is that the galaxies over here are, some of them have very different colors than the galaxies on this side. Um, and so this sort of highlights that JWST is gonna give us a new view of what galaxies look like and we're gonna be able to measure things that we weren't able to measure because we can now measure this red light that was in, sort of invisible to the eyes of Hubble. So now I'm gonna zoom in just to sort of highlight how many more galaxies we'll be able to detect with JWST compared to Hubble. So I'm gonna zoom in on this little box here. And so now you can really see how JWST is just gonna pick out all of these faint, distant, tiny little galaxies in the early universe that are really gonna tell us about how the first galaxies formed, what they looked like, what their shapes were, uh, you know, and and also sort of break down the composition of those galaxies. What kinds of stars are, are living in them? How much dust do they have? Stuff like that. So, um, so that's very exciting that we're gonna see these uh, early galaxies, but it's also, JWC is gonna tell us a lot about galaxies at all distances from, from Earth, um, because we're gonna have this new, these new colors that will tell us new things about the galaxies themselves at any cosmic distance. So just to sort of, highlight some of the things that JWST might tell us. Suppose you wanted to look at a galaxy in the nearby universe where we have a really good idea of what the different structures inside galaxies look like. So I'm showing here the Andromeda galaxy. This is our closest large galaxy neighbor. So it's going to be the one that we're able to study the best in, in the greatest detail. So here's probably the picture that most people are used to seeing. This is the visible plus the near infrared image of um, color composite of uh, the um, Andromeda galaxy. So the thing you should see is that if you look at other wavelengths, this galaxy looks quite different than it does in the visible light. So if you go, for example, to the ultraviolet, the ultraviolet is only picking out the light from hot, new, massive stars that are short-lived. And it's not telling you anything about the older stars that live in the galaxy. And um, Additionally problematic, hot, young, massive stars emit only ultraviolet light. They also are the most extincted by dust in the foreground. And you can kind of see that by comparing these, um, where the hot, massive, young stars are here to this, this picture, which shows these big dust uh, lanes that are blocking light. So this doesn't mean there's no stars here. If you looked in the far infrared, which is a part of the wavelength uh, regime where dust that gets heated by stars will you know, heat up and re-emit that light as, as far infrared emission, um, then you can see that there is actually a lot of energy coming out of this area with a bunch of dust. So this plot is sort of just to point out that having extra wavelength coverage is actually quite important for putting together the, the history of how galaxies form and what they're currently doing now to sort of form new stars um, so back to our cosmic timeline. Uh, Hubble, while being great and being able to identify galaxies way out here in the early universe, um, we only got a very limited picture from Hubble about what these galaxies looked like. So Hubble, with its, uh, near, its very limited near-infrared coverage, meant that we could see the visible part of the spectrum that also contained the older stars that formed in the galaxy's past, not just the actively new forming stars now, um, we could only see that up to about redshift of about three. So that is uh, about 11.5 billion years ago. Any galaxies earlier that Hubble was able to find, all we could see was the young hot stars. And worse, we could see the young hot stars, but only if they weren't blocked by dust. So we have a very incomplete picture of what these galaxies looked like. 
So with JWST, we're going to be able to get this picture all the way out to almost uh, almost here to about redshift of 10 is where we'll be able to see um, the stars that formed in the past and the stars that are forming now. So one last quick uh, point is that Hubble, um, while you know Hubble's known for making these beautiful high resolution images of galaxies. Um, but you might have noticed that JWST's mirror is quite large compared to Hubble's. And so that large mirror means that JWST actually has much better spatial resolution than Hubble does at certain wavelengths. So here I'm just showing a simulation that demonstrates this. So this is not a real galaxy. This is a galaxy from a cosmological simulation. Um, but that's nice because then you know what the actual shape is, the intrinsic shape of this galaxy, and you can make simulated images like this. So this is an image of this uh, simulated galaxy. It's at about 10 billion years ago. And this is what Hubble would see. Um, and you can, I mean, you can still make out the structure, but there's these big pixelated, uh, you know, big pixels from the limited resolution. Um, now, if you look with JWST, the resolution is much better. And this is gonna really help us. So down here is a little inset that sort of zooms in on this, on this box. This is, stands for uh, 400 parsecs. So for um, comparison, the Milky Way is about 10,000 uh, 10, parsecs. So this is much smaller than the size of the Milky Way. But anyway, the, um, the point here is that JWC is gonna have really exquisite resolution to measure the properties of these galaxies and their substructure. And that's gonna help us figure out how they sort of came together and coalesced to form these big, beautiful galaxies we see in the nearby universe today. Okay, so I'll, in summary, um, this is sort of very uh, quick summary because you know JWC is gonna teach us a lot, but I only had 20 minutes. So this is, um, you know, uh, we're gonna understand from JWST when and how the first stars and galaxies form. And that's gonna answer a lot of questions about um, the early universe. And then we're gonna better understand the shapes and structures of galaxies and how they assembled across cosmic time and sort of better understand evolution of the universe as a whole. Um, so I'll just also leave up uh, advertisement for coming weeks, public lecture series. <laughs>